0: Lee Horton.
1: Hey, it's Lee. Welcome to Business Problem Solve. I'm really excited to, uh, to have a conversation with somebody who I became familiar with their works about 10 years ago. My uncle worked um, in a council in the northwest of, uh, of England and he told me I had to read a book. I had to read a book called Liquid Thinking and that was my first introduction to the, to the guy I'm talking to today. So it's with great pleasure. Can I uh, introduce Damien Hughes? How are you, Damien?
2: I'm great, thanks, Lee, and it's a real pleasure to be on, so thank you for asking me.
1: No, no, fantastic. Pleasure's all mine. So um, I guess for, for people that haven't um, heard of you or uh, aware of you, um, who are you, what do you do, and, and how, how can you sum that up?
2: Right, okay. So, um, well, um, my name's Damien Hughes. Um, the easiest way of describing it is I, d- I do a few different roles. So uh, I, my background is I'm a, a professor of organizational psychology and change at uh, Manchester Met University. So yeah. uh, I look very much at sort of um, the psychology that underpins high-performing teams and cultures and organizations. So the second job I do is I work uh, as a consultant across quite a wide range of organizations, supporting them to, um, to build these kind of robust cultures. So uh, I do a lot in education, do bits in business, and I currently do quite a lot in the world of elite sport. So I'm on the coaching staff with the Scotland Rugby Union team at the moment. Um, wow. I work for Canberra Raiders out in the NRL. And then um, I'm doing some work at the moment with Norwich City in the Premier League.
1: Um, and then the
2: third job I do is a write. So I've done a few different books, Lee. Um, yeah. So you were kind enough to, to mention Liquid Thinking. That was my first book I did about 15 years ago. Yeah. But I write very much around these topics. So the last book I did was a book called The Barcelona Way. Which yeah. looks at how do you go about specifically creating a high performing culture? And we looked at uh, how FC Barcelona had taken a lot of the theory of best practice and put it into uh, um, and, and implemented it.
1: Brilliant. So I, I do want to explore Barcelona away um, uh, shortly. I think when, when I asked you the sure. question, it, maybe it, should, it would have been easier for me to say, What do you not do? Because that's quite an extensive <laughs> no. list, isn't it? <laughs>
2: no. No, yeah, I'm not, i I work on the basis that a moving target is more
1: difficult to hit, so yeah.
2: uh, I'm constantly <laughs> I'm constantly on the move.
1: Yeah. So, how, how did you get into all of those things that then then enabled you to then to work with Norwich City um, and and the Scotland team? And for, so, how how did you get into all of this? And, and what what is your your background to to this point?
2: Right. Okay. So, um, well, I grew up in a boxing gym is uh, the essence. So, um, my dad was a boxing coach. Yeah. Uh, in North Manchester, the area that uh, we're from is it's classed as Europe's third poorest district, so and that'll give you an idea of the kind of social issues that uh, that are all too prevalent. Yeah. But um, my dad set up a boxing gym there in the 1960s, and it was designed to almost just get kids off the street and give them a place to go. Uh, but my dad's passion was boxing, and he ended up taking quite a lot of the lads through uh, from the local community through to become sort of olympic champions british champions european commonwealth and then ultimately he had a number of lads that became world champions so i grew up in that environment so it was very much around sort of sport and nurturing and developing but it was very much around sort of creating a healthy culture yeah so um when i left school i i went working with my dad so went supporting him with him and then uh, I went on to uh, night school eventually to do uh, this topic, uh, originally to study psychology, but I got really passionate around the topic of organizational psychology. So I went and did that right the way through as far as I could go uh, in academia. And then I went into uh, the corporate world. So um, I thought I needed to get a proper job at some (laughs) stage. (laughs) So um, I went into uh, the corporate world and ended up doing seven years there eventually for myself as an HR director, yeah. um, and um, I was implementing a lot of the stuff around the theory of sort of organizational psychology and helping to build high-performing cultures. Then 15 years ago, I decided that uh, I wanted to do that across a wider range. Yeah. So um, I ended up setting up a consultancy that combines both the practical but the academic stuff uh, to, give, uh, to support leaders that are keen on creating uh, cultures that are not only high performing but are strong enough that they can cope when it comes under the kind of relentless pressure that business demands of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um you've used the word culture a few times though. What is your definition of a culture?
2: Well, culture is very much around how people behave. So um and there's a great quote that says culture is how people behave when nobody else is watching. So it's yeah. very much around it's not about having to put in place Necessarily, just punitive measures to doing it. It's about it's about being clear, so really transparent about what people are expected to behave like, and then being consistent in the demands that you make of them. So that's pretty much it. So there's a great quote from um, one of the coaches that I work with at Barcelona, a guy called Cheeky Baguerastein, that uh, I thought also summed it up beautifully. He was talking about Barcelona in particular, but he said, "Your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door." Your behaviour yeah. will decide if we keep you in the dressing room. So it's Amazing. always the idea that that talent is just the first step of getting into an organisation. Behaviour, in other words, culture, yeah, is what keeps you there.
1: So how, how have you managed to transfer the lessons from from say, from sport into into the business world?
2: Well, I mean that's a really interesting question, Lee. Um, and I often um, urge a lot of people in the corporate world to say, don't try and um, force fit or when people come along and tell you there's lots of parallels between sport and business i often find this, i mean that's a load of nonsense for two reasons that one um bullying can happen a lot in sports and environments that, uh, that can often be passed off as being part of your working day so take for example in some of the football teams i've worked with if somebody's got a problem with somebody else they'll smash them in training yeah. and they'll legitimize it as it's part of the training now that kind of practices could never get away, you'd never get away with that in the corporate world, obviously. Yeah. But the second thing as well is, in the sporting world, you can get rid of people a lot easier. The punitive measures are a lot starker. so you can drop somebody from a team, you can isolate them from a squad or, you can sell them. whereas employment law means that that kind of practice again doesn't happen so readily and quite, and quite rightly so in yeah. the corporate world. So I often find that sport um, sort of metaphors. When they're used in business, fall short a little bit for me. But the bit that I think where there is some overlap is in the people bit. So, one of the responses that I that I would give to that question is: I don't work in sport. I just happen to work with people that work in sport. Yeah. So the people bit is the consistent element of of how this stuff works. So there's stuff around how do you teach people to cope under pressure? How do you deliver a message that people will remember long after? You've delivered it. How do you get a diverse collection of people to behave in a co- in a cohesive manner? They're all challenges that sport faces as well. Yeah. But understanding the psychology of how that works, I think that bit is relevant to business. So I tried to take very much around the people challenges, and I feel I'm quite lucky that having worked in both of those worlds, I can see uh, where the parallels are, but equally see where the um, uh, where they diverge massively.
1: Yeah, got you, got you. So I, I stopped you midway through your um, through through your through your journey. So how how did you get to to work with sports teams from the background that you had? I know because I know you said you started in in boxing and in the gyms. Was it was it that avenue that took you and created the opportunities, or was it was it your academia oh. that did it? Uh, both really. So. Um so um, my, um, I
2: started working um, a long time ago, so I, I, I've been friendly with lots of different sports coaches because um, just in terms of um, for, like through the boxing work, I've I'd, I'd, I'd gotten to know quite a few coaches over the years, and what I found was that a lot of these coaches often want somebody that they can just chat with in a sort of safe, trusted environment. That yeah. When they're on the job, if you like, they're expected to have the answers, so to be able to just, have somebody that they can go and chat with in a safe environment without anyone judging them is often yeah. really valuable. And One of um, my closest mates um, was the head coach at the Leeds Rhinos in rugby league, a man called Tony Smith. Yeah. So when Tony was there, uh, we used to just meet up informally about once a month and just go for a drink and just have a chat about some of the challenges. And then Tony got the uh, England rugby league job, so I, I, he asked me then if I would uh, join his staff Um, to work with him so uh, we worked um, together with England Rugby League and then when he finished there he went into a club um, at Warrington Wolves so I worked with him for five years in that environment and was really lucky to to see um, the success that Tony brought to them so they were a club that had never won anything in 30 odd years and in the five years that I was lucky enough to work with him we won the Challenge Cup three times we won the league twice and Got to two grand finals with wow. pretty much ninety percent of the same players that he'd inherited, um, and that was like, a I mean, that was like going back and doing uh, a PhD at uni in terms yeah. of the learnings of going into uh, a sports team on a on a daily basis with them. Yeah. So then from there, um, I've um, I've I've sort of carried on working with other sports teams, but what I always find interesting is that a bit like the business world. I think people look for silver bullets. They go, so what's the answer then? And they look, and, and they want to know what's the one thing that happens. And the reality is, like most organizations, it's about getting good people, getting good leadership, creating a good environment, and then repeating that consistently over a long time. And you find that some people don't have that patience that, uh, to do that, whereas... Yeah. Um, I've been really lucky. I've worked with some really good coaches and some really good people who have got that patience to keep doing good things over and over again relentlessly. And then it's been a real pleasure to sort of see the success that uh, uh, that's come their that way.
1: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So, what what is it that you enable in in people? What is what is it that if if Tony's taking you to to these to these different teams and then and he's got a set of players and the players don't change? Um, what what is it that you bring to the party, and and how do you get them to see and think differently?
2: <laughs> I mean, well, again, that's a it's a nice question, but I'd say I don't think I bring a great deal. I think I, I like I think in my world you, it, it'd be easy to bullshit and say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, I, I think I was a Catholic and I think I turned it round. And the reality is, I don't know that if I was to tell you that I thought I I added one percent to that team's performance. I still reckon I'm over-exaggerating my importance because it's not me out there doing it. It's not me coaching the players to do it. It's the players and the coaches working together. My job is to almost ask them questions and and prompt them. But the vast majority of the time, they're smart people doing really well. So they know the answers. They know how to do it. Uh, So I'd probably say that, a lot of my job is doing nothing elegantly for a lot of the time, <laughs> but then there are moments where you might have to step in. So yeah. I'll give you a really simple example. I remember one of um, Tony's big trademarks um, as a coach is he wants his players to take risks. So he's constantly saying, you know, throw the ball out from behind your back, take risks, I want you to innovate. And we were about 18 months into, um, the, um, into my time there at Warrington, and we are in the semifinal final uh, to get into the grand final and it'll be the first time in the club's history that they'd ever done it. And one of our players ended up uh, in the last uh, minute threw the ball out from behind his back as we were going to score the winning try and it got intercepted. The opposition ran the length of the field and knocked us out. Yeah. Now, the devastation in that moment is huge. So the emotion is coming at you like a tidal wave uh, for everybody.
3: Yeah.
2: And that's where I remember as we were on our way down to the dressing room, I asked Tony, I said, what are you going to say now? And he he was obviously really annoyed at at what was um, seen as being uh, quite a sloppy pass from this player. And my challenge was to say to him, if you go in there now and hammer that player for what you've done, you basically uh, dismiss the last 18 months' work because you've told those players that we have to take risks. And he's taken a risk. But if you now shout at him for taking the risk, what you're saying is, Take a risk as long as you know it'll come off. And by definition, that's not a risk. Yeah. So as hard as that is, we need to almost bite our tongue. So Tony knew this. So what he did was he just sent the players away that day. We didn't, he didn't do any kind of uh, post-mortem with them. Then when he got them in the next day, he was obviously calmer. He was more rational. And he was able to say, you know what? We did some things really well there and didn't yeah. address the mistake at the end. Now, the nice irony to this is that... And this is where sport almost speeds up this process. Twelve months later, we won the Challenge Cup at Wembley um, against the same team that had knocked us out, and the player that had made this risky pass ended up being the best player in that game.
3: Yeah, really. So there
2: was something like, so there was something that said, "No, I wouldn't claim any credit for any of that." But my point is, it shows you that often, I like, I haven't done anything than just ask a question and have yeah. a look at where there might have been an inconsistency due to that short-term emotional feeling of disappointment that has come through. Yeah. So I know it's a long-winded answer to your question, Lee, but I would often say that my job is to almost help the coaches create that environment where people feel they can come in and flourish and perform at their best and bring the talent that gets them in the room to, yeah. uh, to its fullest uh, potential.
1: So, so you're like the, the coach's coach
2: or the coach's conscience <laughs> um, or...? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I I mean, over the years, I found that I, uh, I think uh, I can be more effective if I work with the coaches rather than just with the playing group. And the reason I do that is because the coaches are the ones with the credibility. The coaches are there every day. The coaches are the ones that wield the power of whether they select you or not. Yeah. So I feel that if I, if, if so, if you can take your own ego out of the equation, and say, well, I'll work in the shadows. I'll work. Uh, with the coaches long before they'll ever stand up, I think that personally I'm more effective yeah. uh, in that particular role.
1: Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. So then, um, from from then, how did you how did you pick Barcelona and to write about? <laughs> where, where did where were you when that that idea popped into your head, and and you you then started started to do that?
2: Uh, well, I'd I'd been uh, really lucky that I, um, I've done a few books. Um, and I've got um, my editor um, come to me and asked me if I'd be interested uh, in writing a book around my background of of this this topic of organizational psychology and, and how did, how does it wield uh, the impact on a culture? And I said, yeah. I would, but you've got a commercial demand and nobody's picking up a book on that uh-huh. um, uh, the, in terms of seeing it in uh, in a shop and naturally buying it. Yeah. So he said, well, why don't we do it through the eyes of a sports team? And now... Like a lot of businesses, a lot of sports teams are the same. In They pay lip service to the topic of culture. So they go, yeah. oh, well, we've got a really good culture here. We've got a good set of players and things like that. And then when you start to scratch a bit below the surface, you go, yeah, you're playing at it. You don't really invest in it. This, this, is, this is something that, that, that you do almost by accident rather than design. So we narrowed it down to three teams that genuinely have invested and put the money where the mouth is when it comes to culture. Yep. And the three that we looked at were, one is a New Zealand rugby union team. Second one was the New England Patriots in the NFL. And then the third one was FC Barcelona. Yeah. Now, I think it was airfare costs that the publisher <laughs> went to Barcelona.
3: <laughs> but,
2: but, but the other reality was that there'd been, um, there'd been quite a lot of um, other stuff done on uh, New Zealand rugby uh, the New England Patriots, I'm not familiar enough with that world to feel like I was passionate enough to then invest the next two years of my life doing it. Yeah. But Barcelona was something that um, I knew a little bit about it and felt that it, that it, uh, that it really ignited my own curiosity. Yeah. So what I then did was uh, I spent two years back and forth from Catalonia um, and I was really fortunate that when I started doing the research, there was three architects behind it that had genuinely decided that culture could be a competitive advantage. Um, now, at the time, two of them, a man called Ferenc Soriano, and I referenced the other guy earlier, Chiqui Yeah, they'd left Barcelona and were now at Manchester City. Yeah. So um, um, they don't do any public interviews. They don't talk about anything that, they do, uh, that they've do that they done. But I was lucky that, and again, this is, goes back to one of your earlier questions of uh, working within sport. Often it can be quite a small world. And, um, there was a guy that I'd done some work with that was friends with one of them who facilitated the interview. Brilliant. So once they uh, agreed to sit down and do it, they became incredibly generous uh, with their time. Yeah. And then obviously the third wheel of it was uh, Guardiola because he was brought in as the coach to do this. Yeah. Now Guardiola's got, um, he's got a, um, a mantra that he's had since he took over as coach. He doesn't do one-on-one interviews. Right. And I, And... I quite like his rationale behind it because there's a clear reason like most of the things that he does and he doesn't want to favour one particular journalist over another and therefore risk them misinterpreting his words. Yeah. So the way we got him to agree to do it was that um, his brother, who's his agent, agreed to do um, uh, the interviews with me and then he would answer the questions that he knew he could answer but then he'd take the other questions back to Pep and do that and then the other way that Pep agreed was that he read the manuscript. So, When I'd finished it, he agreed that he'd read the manuscripts. And if he had any amends that he wanted making, he would send them through. So that's the way that he agreed to do it. So, and then again, interviewing some of the players and things like that uh, um, was facilitated by some of these guys I've just mentioned. Yeah. So I spent two years looking at it and uh, looking at the way that they'd gone about doing it, which, again, um, I was able to marry it up with the experiences from the academic side to say, this is why they did it. Um, this is what they did. This is yeah. the result from it. But then more importantly for the reader to say, and this is how you can implement it in your own world. So again, get away from this idea that you don't have to have Lionel Messi sat in, you, sat in your staff room, that the, the implications of managing sort of the talented people are yeah. consistent, whether it's sport, business or, uh, or education. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. Thank thank you for that. So, as you know, this podcast is called Business Problem Solve. What do you see as the number one um, business problem that needs solving at this time?
2: Wow, okay. That was a brilliant question. Um, Well, I'll be biased because of my background in terms of what we've spoken about on the podcast, but I think um, getting people to invest in soft skills and recognise it um, as valuable is key. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example I do with sports teams. Yeah, where I'll get them to say, think about your best performance. You can do this with business teams as well, but you say, think about your best performance. And now break it down into two areas, soft and hard skills. So if we put the hard skills is sort of your technical expertise, your knowledge, your industry uh, background and things like that, the soft skills are things like cohesion, confidence, communication, things like that. Yeah. Now, if you think about if it's a best performance or, say like it might be your best quarter sales results or something like that, or your best client that you have. Divide that relationship into those two areas and give me a rough uh, proportion. Now, when I work with elite teams, I've yet to work with any team that will tell you it's anything less than 70-30 in favor of soft skills. Right. So my next question is, where do you invest most of your time? Yeah. When it comes to training and your working environment, where do you spend most of your time? And the irony is that most of those teams spend the vast majority of their time, 95% of their time, in the hard skills area. Yeah. So the challenge is, well, how do you think you're going to get better then? How do you think you're going to make really great leaps of improvement if most of your, if most of your performance is driven by the soft skills, but you don't spend any time in that area? You're waiting for almost an accident to happen. Yeah. So I think... Soft skills are one of these areas that it's really easy to denigrate because they can often be a little, a little bit more difficult to measure. You can measure how, much, uh, how heavy the weight you're lifting in a sports team is. You can measure how fast somebody runs. You know, In business, you can measure productivity. You can measure turnover. But yeah. how do you actually measure just spending time thinking about working as a team? How do you measure spending time on communication? Well, the yeah. irony is it's a bit more difficult to do, so therefore it's easier to dismiss as a topic. Yeah. So it's about almost changing the narrative within business and getting people to recognize that actually, that although it might appear, you know, it's easy to, even the language to call it soft skills, almost makes it seem less significant or less important. The reality is that is what underpins most successful teams and organizations and cultures.
1: Yeah, is there is there one soft skill that's more important than the others, or is there one that's more in need of of of, of honing? Um,
2: I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, again, it's a brilliant question. I'd probably say kindness and empathy. Oh wow! You know, um, yeah. the the I, the I think like even using words like that, I'm conscious that some of your listeners might be like, "What?" But the reality is being kind and understanding to both ourselves, first of all, and then to other people um, is, is such an underrated virtue. Yeah. You know, that, that who, that who really does want to work with dickheads? Who does want to work with people that are constantly sort of sniping or taking the piss? Like, I hear it a lot. Like (laughs) I've got a bit of uh, a saying that I say that I think one of the, the, the most, um, Toxic words that we hear in our cultures are the term banter. And I have just a short on view that say, I've yet to meet anyone that uses the term banter regularly that I wouldn't consider to be a dick. right? Because often banter is often about bullying or taking yeah. the piss out of a couple of individuals or yeah. saying something about people that's personal. And then, when, and then when they don't receive it with the humor, you go, oh, it's just banter, mate, when the reality is. If you've got some feedback, give them feedback in a kind, respectful decent way. If you can do that, they're more likely to receive it and therefore do something about it. So I think uh, out of all, all the soft skills, kindness is probably the most underrated, but equally carries an awful lot of weight.
1: Yeah, no, it's a great, great point, One I've never, never considered uh, previously. So, um, just about Barcelona, where I just got some, some questions about some of the, some of the points that when, I, when I've listened to it. So I, am a big fan of listening to books rather than reading books. I find. Uh, oh yeah, I do. Yeah,
2: I've just, I've just finished recording another one uh, yesterday, actually. So I, I did one a few years ago on Ferguson. Uh, yeah. So the audio book's coming out for that this summer.
1: Oh, fantastic, fantastic, fantastic! So, do, do you do your recordings yourself? Is it all, all of them yourself? <laughs> Yeah, so what happened about, uh,
2: when it, um, um I did a book called The Winning Mindset uh, a few years ago, um, and uh, the publisher said, oh, we want to do this as an audio book. So I said, great. And then they said, do you want us to get an actor for it? So I went, yeah, yeah of course, you know, get somebody that's got a posh voice to do it. It'd be probably a lot more effective. <laughs> and then it was my wife that said to me, she said, well, you do it yourself. It's your book, you know, you're passionate yeah. about it. So when I went back and asked them they went yeah yeah would love you to do it and then uh, when I told my mum
1: my mum went what with your voice <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so you don't you don't you don't have it. an accent Damien, you don't have an accent do you uh, yeah i think i
2: yeah I'd, i i think i do i think yeah. it's uh, i think if we met in person i think you'd, you know, you'd be able to tell it's a manchester accent yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but yeah so um i did the first one myself yeah. and uh, i think and i think the feedback that the publishers got was it's just like the fact that, one, it's the author, and therefore it really matters to me. Yep. But secondly, you can sort of be passionate about the areas that, uh, because, you know, I've invested three years of my life doing it. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah, I did that. And then for the Barcelona book, they said, well, you know, you did the last one. Do you want to do the next one? Yeah. So I ended up doing it. Now, uh, the, the producer that was listening to us described it as a manklish. That I was speaking because I kept my mouth some of the Spanish phrases. I felt a bit like, you know, Manuel in faulty Towers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so no, it is me
1: doing it. No, no, brilliant. That, and that definitely came across. So when I was listening to Barcelona, where you can tell the bits that you're really passionate about. Oh, I mean, it, oh, thank it, you! It's so much more. It resonates with you more because you know you can you, your passion comes across. If it's somebody that's just read the book and then is reading it out loud, then then they they don't know the the meaning behind it, the effort that's gone into it. So that, that, that definitely comes across. I, I really enjoyed. Um, well, it's the, funny the, the you listen. say that, Lee,
2: because yesterday the 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 producer when uh, this book I did on uh, it's called How to Think Like Alex Ferguson, and it's a book I wrote six years ago. Yeah. But the publisher said, oh, we want to uh, do this. And, and, and he was saying that uh, the difference you often get is when it's the author that's done it, it flows a lot easier. Whereas when it's somebody that's reading it almost for the first time,
3: yeah. uh,
2: it takes a lot longer just because they're sort of getting used to it. So so hopefully it, it's a bit of an easier listen uh, for anyone that, uh, that chooses to do so. But thank you for, for giving up your time to do it as well. I am grateful.
1: Yeah, no, no, it's good. It's good. I, I got I did get a lot from it. And so I've made, I've made some notes as I've as I've gone through it. So I've listened to it a few oh, times now. Um cultural architects. What are they? Yep. Um how do you find them? Yep. Um and how important are they? Okay, brilliant. Well, cultural architects is a term that I I got from um
2: a psychologist called Willy Raylo, a Norwegian psychologist, uh coined the term in the nineteen seventies. And I just thought it was a perfect description of these are your leaders without title. These are the people that really carry a culture when nobody else is watching. So these are, like, the easiest way to explain a cultural architect is these are people that just really, that, that the culture really matters to them. Yeah. So when we make a decision, I'll give you a really simple example from the business world. When you're walking through a corridor and if you see somebody maybe gossiping and, or talking bad of a colleague, there's two ways. You, you could confront it. Now, there's two different thinking systems that go into play. One thinking system is you do a cost versus benefit analysis of, of addressing what they're doing. So you might go, who are they? What's their status? Is this likely to kick off? Is it really worth my time telling them to stop speaking badly of a colleague like that? And if you come down on the fa- uh, in the balance, you go, it's probably not worth it. You walk past it and you turn a blind eye to it. Yeah, A cultural architect would walk past that same situation and they would make the decision based on identity, and identity is three is three question is determined by three questions. You say, who am I? What sort of person am I? What's this situation that I'm confronted with? And what would somebody like me do in this situation? Yeah. So you're not doing it on the basis of being popular or the consequences. You're just doing it because you go, that's wrong. That's out of order. That's not what we do in this culture. So. What you find is in any organization, if you want to change the culture, you don't need to change everybody. You just need to make sure you've got a core group of these cultural architects, people that it really matters to, and yeah. get and, and invest your time in them. And they will start to wield real influence within your organization and your culture. So, you know, Clive Woodward used to use the old saying that culture is what happens when nobody's watching. So yeah. when a leader's not in the room, that's where your cultural architects, your leaders without titles start to emerge. So at Barcelona, for example, they had, so when things went badly wrong for them post 2006, they had three guys in the dressing room that were the cultural leaders. One was uh, Samuel Eto'o, one was Deco, and one was the Brazilian footballer Ronaldinho. And those three guys rubbed along uneasily with each other. But Ronaldinho uh, started indulging in sort of like that playboy lifestyle and stopped concentrating on the football. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, there's a stat around that that fascinated me when I started in the research. In that period when he was going away behaving like a, uh, like a playboy, 10 out of the 23 players that sat in the dressing room with him also separated from long-term partners during that same period. Oh, wow. Now, some of them were caught in sort of compromising situations uh, out partying with him. Well, that can show you how if you get the wrong cultural architect, or your cultural architects go wrong and become cultural assassins, they can be equally powerful but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. So it's very much about identifying them. So how do you go about doing it? Well, the way to do it is, first of all, be really clear about the behaviors that you're demanding. So this is the kind of – because you need to be really clear about the phrase I use, is the trademark behaviors, the behaviors that define your culture. Now, you can't have too many of them. But once you get them identified, you then have to almost go and ask, ask your, your, your people to vote for them. Who are the people that embody them? Because what you need is, you are, I find this is a really quick and dirty way of doing it. But if you can give some tangible evidence to four or five people to say, you're respected, and these are the reasons you're respected. Yeah. So therefore, when you speak, you can speak with credibility. You can speak and you've got some uh, resonance it almost gives them a mandate to go out there um, and drive it. So then the challenge is, you say to them, this isn't just about confronting bad behaviors. This is about recognizing and rewarding good behaviors as well. Yeah. So the phrase I would use to leaders us is, give your cultural architects the remit to catch people out,
1: but equally to catch people in. Yeah, and really. let them start to reinforce the culture just bit by bit. Brilliant. So it's not a particular grade. It's not a particular seniority level. It's more about the person themselves and what and and, and, and yeah, so, behaviours. So,
2: so, so, yeah, that's a really good point that it's not about status or rank. So what we know is that cultural architects, these people that are respected, they, um, this hierarchy always emerges and the two criteria they often emerge on is technical or social. So they're either really good at the job, and when they speak, everyone listens to them. Yeah. Or they're sort of charismatic, gregarious characters that when they speak, people listen to them. Yeah. And as long as they have one of those two criteria, that's where they've, they have a good chance of becoming uh, those architects. Got you. Got you.
1: Good. Um, oh, are you there, Damien? Yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, I sorry. Yeah. I, I thought I thought I'd lost you. Then thought the the the, the wonders <laughs> no, no, of, of, of internet. Yeah. So the the other thing that I was going to um, uh, pick up on was around decision paralysis. When I when I listened to you use the words decision paralysis in, in the book and he's saying it's dead, deadly for the coach, I thought of myself studying Subway and and I look at all of the different uh, the different offerings in Subway for choosing choosing me, me sandwich and I always just choose the same thing every single time because because there's, because there is so much choice. So yeah um do you want to just talk about what decision paralysis is, is for you whether you want to use the same examples that are in the book or, or, or different
2: yeah so decision paralysis is, is, is so i often find that ambiguity is is a, is a is a big um is a big no-no uh in terms of a culture so when you give people too much choice we almost don't know where to start we freeze in the face of because we don't know what uh what to choose yeah so there's all kinds of research on this so Uh, Barry Schwartz um, wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice, where he's done um, a whole heap of um, different uh, research on the topic that says, um, I think the one I mentioned in the book was where, when you give people a choice of 24 jams in a grocery store, they uh, they will choose something like uh, only 10% uh, people will purchase. When you give people the choice of six jams. It goes yeah. up to something like 40% simply because you're removing so much choice that you're almost making it easier for, uh, for people. Yeah. So I often find that that's the case in both behaviors but also on targets, that if you're giving people 10 KPIs to focus on, yeah. you don't know where to start. But if you can identify this idea of your keystone habits where you say, what are the keystone targets that if we hit them, there's a good chance other targets will follow from it. Yeah. You almost remove that ambiguity and allow people to focus on the things that really matter. So whether that's in terms of behaviors where in an organization, how many organizations do you go into, Lee, where you see they've almost got seven or eight corporate values and you yeah. won't, by the time you're trying to remember the eighth one, you forgot what the first <laughs> one is and you're not sure how it impacts on this, on this irate customer that's shouting at me. So it's about stripping it and saying, again, that phrase, trademark behaviors, have three that define it. But even in terms of when it comes to the operation, yeah. it might be, what can, so the question I would ask business leaders is, what can you do better than anyone else in your industry? So as a business, what can you become world-class at? Yeah. And then to become world-class at anything, you almost have to remove all the extraneous stuff and focus on being world-class on that one thing. It might, so say, for example, when I, I, like, I sometimes hear organisations say, oh, we want to be world-class at customer service. And you go, okay. First of all, who is world-class at customer service? And When they can't even tell you, you go, well, right, so you're just making it up. These are just ambiguous words. Yeah. So let's break down customer service. It might be your response time. It might be um, the courtesy. It might be the, the level of engagement that you have with your customers. So if that's what you want to be world-class at, now let's focus on that more than anything else. So yeah. at Barcelona, they said, we want to be the world's best team at never losing the ball. So you go, okay, right, that's interesting. What does yeah. that mean? So then they went, well, the research says if we can keep possession of a ball for 70% of the game, we will win 92% of matches simply because wow. we'll physically and mentally exhaust the uh, the opposition. Yeah. So rather than just say, well, that's what we want to do, they then looked at their training routines and said, right, let's strip everything out other than uh, and focus mainly on this idea of being the world's best team and never losing the ball. Yeah. So they had a drill called a rondo, that's a Spanish term. It's like piggy in the middle. Yeah. So piggy in the middle, rather than use it, say like in British cultures, that might be used as a bit of a warm-up drill just to get the players moving and get the blood flowing and get people laughing. Yeah. And also equally in England, it's often seen as how do you stitch your mate up when you play that game? Whereas yeah. in Spanish culture, the piggy in the middle game is how do we keep this away from uh, from the people in the middle? Yeah. This is about how do we keep them going for longer? Now, if you think about that, rather than use it as a warm-up drill, they said, how do we extend that so it becomes the key part of our training? Because learning to keep the ball and circulate it and keep it in our own possession is exactly what we want to be world-class at doing. Yeah. So they took that exercise and made it the foundation stone of everything that they did, and then they measured it relentlessly. Wow. So, so one of the sort of insults people use is this idea of ticky-tack of football that they played, this yeah. idea of pass, 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 and then pass again. But the reality was, the players knew that that, that there was a really clear purpose behind it. It wasn't passing for the sake of passing. It was passing to physically and mentally exhaust your opponent so that you could beat them. Um, So you didn't need to beat them in the first 10 minutes, but you would beat them in the last 10 minutes if you got everything else right.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. And um, whilst just on the final question on Barcelona where you talk really really early into the book, you talk about um, having a, a commitment culture, um, and then, then you separated it out into three separate levels. Is commitment not commitment? Why did Why did you separate out into three levels? Um, and do, do you want to just talk a little bit about those?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So, so first of all, this phase of commitment culture is the bit that. Uh, um, so there's five different types of culture. I mean, this is a point that um, the, the start of the conversation we were chatting yeah. about, but commitment culture. So. There's five types of culture. You can have an autocratic culture that's Mm -hmm. driven by one or two powerful individuals. You can have a star culture, which is about getting all just like superstar players. You can have a bureaucratic culture, which is about policies and procedures. An engineering culture is about technical skills. But a commitment culture is about behaviors and having a really clear sense of purpose. Yeah. So. The evidence says commitment cultures are more sustainable. They will give you a greater guaranteed chance of success than any of those other four types. So if you think about that idea of commitment, commitment then comes from, um, so the etymology of the word says, you have to choose to be a part of it. So you don't sleepwalk your way into a high-performing culture. If you find yourself as part of it, you've made a very conscious and clear choice to be a part of it. Yeah. So when I want to talk about the three different choices, uh, the three different levels. There's three choices why we do anything in life. Now, I explain it by saying you do things through desperation, rationalization, or inspiration. So what do I mean by that? I listen to the language that people will use when you ask them, why do you work here? They'll say, I've got to work here. I've got to come in. I've got bills to pay. I've got mortgage to pay. I've got kids to look after. Yeah. So they're doing it through a sense of desperation. They're doing it because they feel they have to. They're obliged. Yeah. The second reason people will tell you is rationalization. They'll say, oh, I should do really. It's the best employer in the area or it pays the highest salary I can get or, you know, this is the place where it's best suited to my skill set. So they're doing it through um, a clearly rational choice. Now, again, what, what that gives you is that's where people bring their brain to work, not necessarily their heart. The third level of commitment, though, is when people really want to do it, they do it for inspiration. They go, I love this. This is what I really want to do. I get to do this. This is great fun. Yeah. And when they do it through that, they're doing it because they've they've really chosen to do it because there's a range of options and I've committed to do this. And what we know is that all three levels are valid, but the one that will give you the greatest sustainable success is when people are doing it
1: both with their breath, with their head, and their heart. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you, thank you for that. So a, a, a random question now. What's the, uh, what's, sure. the wor- what's the worst advice you've ever been given? <laughs> Oh wow, that, oh, I like that one. Um, oh, um, I, I did, I
2: did, so there's a few of them, and I see them up in sports teams, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, where they stick them up in like the training rooms and things like that. Like, yeah. losers, uh, losers never quit, and quitters never win, or something like that, yeah. or like. There's those kind of sort of bland, ridiculous, motivational quotes. Yeah. Uh, qu- uh, quitters, uh, what is it? Winners never quit and quitters never win. That's yeah. it.
3: Got you.
2: Because you go, no, sometimes you might do. You know what yeah. I mean? No. Yeah. When yeah. people talk about, I, I think any advice that is sort of binary, you know what I mean? Like when yeah. they either go, you're on the bus or off the bus. Yeah. Right. Well, what does that mean? Or, yeah. You know, <laughs> when people go, you're, you're, you're an energizer or an energy, an energy sapper. Yeah. So I like that but because it's binary. But you go, well, what if I'm in the middle? Or what if I have a bad day? Or yeah. can I not sometimes veer between the two? Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I'm so i always conscious of any advice that comes with that binary either or. I yeah. think um, life is a lot more ambiguous than that, isn't it? It's both and. So yeah. I, think, um, um, I think that. The other piece of advice uh, I think we get badly served with is so I made the transition. I was in the corporate world, and then made the decision to leave and work for myself. Yeah, and that was really incredibly frightening. I found the experience really, really frightening. I often say it took me—I um, physically resigned eighteen months after I'd mentally done so. Yeah, uh, because it took me eighteen months to work up the courage. Yeah, uh, to, uh, to want to do it on my, uh, on my own. So again, when people say to you know, uh, you know, you shouldn't be afraid, or you go, know, no, you should be afraid. You'd be daft if you're not. It's a sign that you're human, so it's sometimes about just admit our vulnerabilities and our fears rather than
1: try and be all kind of machismo about it. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant answer, brilliant answer. So I'm conscious of the time. Um, So what's next for Damien Hughes? So after Barcelona, what what is it you're on with? And and how can people find out about a bit more about you, or learn from you, or book you or? or whatever so what are you yeah, on with right. and, okay. and how can people find you
2: yeah so I'm I'm sort of I'm, I'm, at the moment um, the focus is um, the Scotland rugby guys play in the World Cup in Japan which starts in September so uh, there's a training camp going on from now until um, until then that's dominating an awful lot of my time oh
1: brilliant do you get to uh, go to, do you get to go to Japan
2: yeah 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 so oh, um, I'm lucky enough I'll be going out there uh, with them uh, when we leave so uh Got that, uh, so that's dominating a lot of my time. I'm doing some of the stuff, uh, the consultancy stuff with some of the work, and um, I'm just in the foothills of, of uh, doing the research for uh, another book at the moment, uh, which looks very much at sort of uh, this idea of group norms, so the kind of things that underpin uh, high performing teams, yeah. Um, and then, um, yeah, so. I'm pretty, um, uh, I'm pretty busy, like I said earlier. I'm, yeah. I'm a moving target, which means it's yeah. difficult to hit. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, if anybody is listening and, and uh, the, the stuff on the books, um, that, I mean, they're available on Amazon. And, um, but uh, my, um, I tend to use Twitter uh, in terms of social media. People need to get a hold of me in that way. And that's at Liquid Thinker on there. Okay. And, the, and that's the name of the website as well, liquidthinker.com. Like people yep. can get in touch and if they've got any questions or there's anything that they've heard on this podcast they want me to clarify or explain more than yep. happy if they want to drop me a line there i'll uh i'll pick it up and get back to them
1: no fantastic and then i guess f- final question based on something you you've you briefly spoke about at the beginning you said you're going to work we're working with norwich city are they uh, will they stay up this this coming year? <laughs> um i don't know
2: um i don't know uh is the answer um so there's uh there's there's a lot of really, really good people there yeah. that are making some pretty smart decisions yeah. um, and I think the way they're going about it is really interesting. So, um, one of my friends is uh, a guy called Stuart Weber. He's the director of football there yeah. and uh, and what Stuart's put in place over the last two years. So, so, Stuart did the same job at Huddersfield and got them promoted and then he went into Norwich. They've got a core cool group of young academy graduates. They've got uh, that are part of the first team. They've got a really good head coach in Daniel Farker and then they've got some really good experienced players that are also really good people as well. Yeah. So their view is that they're going to play, they're, they're not going to compromise in terms of the style of football that has been successful for them. They're going to come up to the Premier League and try to play that same style of football. But yeah. they also accept that If they get relegated, they'll do it by by doing that in the right way. They feel that if they got relegated, they'll be stronger for the experience to be able to come again and learn and get smarter. So they're not just prepared to bankrupt everything on on the idea of getting um, a season in the Premier League. They've got a really clear philosophy that they're not prepared to compromise. And I don't care what sport or industry you're working in, I really admire people that have got the courage of their convictions to go and do that when yeah. they will come under pressure.
1: No, completely, completely, completely. So I, th- I think I've used up all of my time and and some more. But so I just want to <laughs> oh, no, say. it's been a
2: pleasure. So thank you for asking me, Leo. Yeah. It's been lovely to chat with you.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Damien. Good luck in Japan. Good luck with everything that you're on with and your, and your new books as well. So just one more time was it liquidthinker.com? Was that yeah, the one? Yeah, liquidthinker.com. Yeah. yeah. So uh, thinker er at the end. Yeah, fantastic. Thank, thank you very much again and uh, and good luck. Yes. Yeah.
2: Thanks, mate. Nice to speak.
0: Thanks for listening to Business Problems Solved. You can contact Lee on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lee Horton, the Business Problem Solver, or via visiting www.leehorton.com for more content and to solve your business problems. And remember. Saying you know how to do it is not doing it.